you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review, where we're just a bunch of blind guys trying to figure out that elephant. And I'm the head blind guy, Lou Rosenfeld, from Rosenfeld Media. And I've got two special guests with me today. Uh, they are Carl Fast and Stephen Anderson. And they have been writing a book for a very long time. I'm not going to tell you how long it's been, but um, we are measuring it in... I think we're in half decades now. Is that right? Is that a unit of time? Can we can we go with that? It's been a while, uh, but I know it's going to be worth it. The book is called Figure It Out, Getting from Information to Understanding. And uh, Stephen and Carl, um, it's a pleasure to have you on the show and talk about something that we've been envisioning for a while and which is right around the corner. How are you? Doing great. Feeling good to have the the book start to be in the rearview mirror, at least the production of it. Now the now the hard work of promoting it and bringing awareness starts. We're just beginning. Just beginning. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting. We're we're going to talk a little bit about the the nature of information and uh, how we we get to understanding. But um, first, I want to talk a, a little bit about. Uh, my perspective as a, a publisher and uh, how it relates to this book. So, um, you know, first of all, well, publishers are biased, but I was kind of dreading this book as it got close to wrapping up uh, because I'll be very frank with you, dear listener, it, it's on the long side for a Rosenfeld media book. Our books tend to be pretty short. In fact, uh, the managing editor, Marta Justak, and I sat down not long ago with full manuscript and um it was long you know not super super long not like uh intolerably long but again for a rosenfeld media book it was long and uh we both got our scissors out and we started reading it uh independently and uh after we both had a chance to look at it we um you know we got together and talked about it and we'd both been dreading telling Stephen and Carl about how much was going to have to go. Nobody likes to hear that. Nobody likes to say that. And then Marta and I talked to each other and said, you know, we're not cutting any of this. We agreed that there is so much great content uh, that we thought we might have at least a minor classic on our hands. I mean, you, the reader, will be the judge of that. But um, it is truly eye-opening, uh, truly... Um, truly something that I think changes the frame that people use to understand information as a thing and what they can do about it, most importantly. It's a real how-to-think book. So I'm going to put Carl on the spot right now. I might do a little tag-teaming between uh, putting them on the spot. And, you know, Carl, if you were going to sum up the book in uh, a couple of lines, uh, how would you do that? Well, I don't know if I could sum it up in a couple of lines, but I'll put it this way. The way I tend to think about, and the way I was taught more specifically to think about information and the information that we have in our world was that we, um, it needs to be created very well and very carefully in a certain kind of way so that people can understand it. You need to make nice diagrams. You need to write good sentences. You need to be clear. Your video needs to be properly edited, right? So the information that as it comes to you should be understandable. And it turns out that there are a whole bunch of different ways in which that's not true. Um, 
think about like, give me a little example. Um, if I gave you a word, just a simple word like elation, it's only seven letters. Try to think of another word that you could make out of that, an anagram. And there is only one word. It's actually a part of the body. I was thinking late ion, but I don't think that's a part of the body. It is not. And so there's only one word. Uh, and when I heard this puzzle, I couldn't think of it. I couldn't think of it. I couldn't think of it. Um, but if you had these, and most people can't, like 95% of the people who get this puzzle just can't do it. But if I gave these to you as a series of Scrabble tiles and I had them in front of you, you could take those tiles and you could move them around and just moving them around would sort of jostle and put a couple things things together. And then you would come up with a word, like maybe you'd get T and O next to each other. And then maybe you'd put the E there and you'd realize, oh, it's toenail. The point of that is that, of that story, is that we think that our brains are super, super powerful. And then when it comes to the information, we just need to take it in. We need to read it. We need to see it. We need to listen to it. And that alone will allow us to understand the information. But there are a whole host of ways in which our brains just simply can't do that very effectively. We need to do something to the information. We need to change it. We need to modify it. We need to draw it in a new way. And a lot of this book is about this idea that we figure things out. We don't just passively take in information and therefore we have understanding. We do things to the world around us, to the information that we have, and that is how we uh, create understanding. Well, wouldn't it be fair to also say that we do things with the world around us? Yes. Talk, Stephen, can you develop that a bit? Uh, actually, I'm going to probably pass this back to Carl because that gets into uh, some of the stuff that he drove a lot, particularly when I invited him as a co-author, and that's around embodied cognition, and particular that our thinking, like you know, isn't just in our heads. Uh, it's and it's not just um, immediately around us with the things we create or present, like the tiles themselves that Carl mentioned are things, right? representations, but it's how we interact with them. But more than that, it's the space beyond like the, you know, I'm, I'm doing this podcast from my desk and I've got files arranged in a certain way. I've got a got one of those like clothesline hangers on the wall where I have notes in front of me uh, as triggers to remind me of things either now or in the future. Um, but we, we create the space we work in and the space also extends to people and other people in it as well. And this is, um, I think you'll start to see some of the struggles we faced in writing this book is once you introduce people into this information space, um, suddenly you're talking about much broader topics like group cognition or systems thinking. And we had to circle back and say, what's our focus? Where do we draw the line? Um, what's another book? What goes in here? Because I think as you commented, the book was already pretty, pretty epic in its current state. Um, but I don't know, Carl, what would you add to that as far as the embodied cognition bit goes? Well, I like I um, so I think we anyone who works with information and who is responsible, I think a lot of listeners uh, to the podcast here, their their work involves creating information products and services. They're maybe an information architect, they're an interaction designer, they do content strategy, they they think about producing information. And if you do that kind of work, you have probably read a lot of books which take a certain view of how the mind works, and that view, right, which is rife through you know human-computer interaction academically, but also all of the practitioner disciplines comes from mainstream cognitive science. And that stuff is foundation work that was laid down through the 60s and 70s and early 80s. And the basic idea of that is that the brain is super, super powerful. 
Um, and that if we want to understand the mind, we need to only really focus on the brain. You know, Don Norman many years ago wrote emotional design. And in that book, he argued that, well, we, in the early days of cognitive science, we took things like emotion and we set that off to the side. And, and we generally do that too in this book. But what they also set aside was the role of the body. The body just didn't really have much of a function. And you can see this in some of the cognitive models, pretty much all the cognitive models from that time. They have like eyes, which are viewed as ocular motor processors, just as a way to take in information, visual information, and then process it and send it to the brain. The brain does all this magical computation, but, but that's it. Um, through even into the mid 90s, you had mo cognitive models in which people didn't even have feet, which is really weird when you think about the main information device that you have today, the smartphone, like totally depends on feet, right? Like it's useful because you have feet and can move around the world. And so what we've seen in, in, in um, cognitive science over the last 20 or 30 years and is now becoming wider is this idea of what is known broadly as embodiment. And so in one view, that means that the mind is inv involves the body but more broadly, it also involves all of the tools and the technologies, the space around you, how you interact with that, how you manage that, how you work with all of these things. It creates a much richer and more complex kind of picture. Um, and that puts you in a very different view when it comes to the information you have in your world. And it totally changes and upends uh, our traditional things. I feel that for people who do design work in some capacity, um, this view forces one to reconsider some of the most fundamental kinds of concepts you have in which the way you approach your work. Can you talk a little bit about uh, an example of that? Well, the example that I come, at, I come back to all the time, and this was something that when I was in graduate school um, many years ago, um, I read a paper that totally changed the way that I look at the world. Uh, and this example is, is in the book, and it was an example of how people play Tetris. Um, and so Tetris is pretty straightforward as a game, right? It's a very popular game. Everybody knows you have the blocks that fall down and there's only four things you can do in the game. You can take the block and you can move it left or you can move it right, or you can rotate it only clockwise in 90 degree increments, or you can drop the pieces down into position. And so there were these researchers who looked at this and they said, well, how do people learn to play Tetris? How do they get better and become more skilled? And what they, predicted from classical theory was that people would begin by making mistakes, but as they got more skilled and as they gained more experience with the game, they would make fewer mistakes. So you might say, move the piece left three spaces and then realize, ah, that was one too far. And then you move it back one space and then you would drop it down into position. So you'd make three moves left, one move right and drop it down, where you could have done two left and drop it down. So it's like two extra actions that you didn't need to do and that over time you would get better. And when they did a very careful keystroke level analysis, they found that this didn't happen. That in some cases, yes, people did get better, but people also made more mistakes as they became better players and they became more experienced players. In fact, the best players deliberately seemed to make more mistakes in certain cases and they couldn't figure out why. Like what would, why would you ever do this? It's a great puzzle. And I'm reading the paper and thinking, I have no idea why you would do this, right? Because my whole way of looking at things in terms of as the, the information that I create for people, when I design a tool, I want to make sure that people do efficient interactions. 
I don't want them making mistakes. If they're navigating through some website, I want them to be able to go as quickly and straightforwardly as possible to the information. That's the navigation system working well. It's well designed because people didn't wander around. But this suggested something different. And so what they argued was that there were two ways of um, two different classes of interactions, broadly speaking. One was what they called pragmatic action. So the purpose of changing the world is simply to change the world. Right? You, you make a change because you um, want to make the world a particular way. And this is the way we normally think about interaction. Otherwise, why, why, why would you interact at all? Like if you, you only interact to change the world. The other one was what they called epistemic action. Epistemic as in epistemology, as in knowledge. And this was a way of interacting with the world to make mental computation easier or simpler or more reliable. So an example here is chess, right? Think about this as, this is the analogy they proposed. Imagine that you're playing chess and you've got a bishop and you put your, you pick up the bishop and you move it. And as soon as you move it, you put your finger on, you keep your finger on it and you realize, oh, that was a bad move. And so then you move it back. As a designer, as an interaction designer, you look at that and you say, well, you did two actions, right? I did one action to change the world and then I pressed undo. The world is now unchanged. Therefore, it's a mistake. The skilled player would never learn to do that. And it's true that grandmasters do learn to do all this stuff in their head, but it takes an incredible amount of practice to get there. They argued that an epistemic action this is all an epistemic action because what's happening is when you make that change, when you move the bishop the first time, suddenly you can see the world in this new state. You change the world not to change the world, but to change yourself, to change your understanding of how you saw the world. And they argued that epistemic actions are probably everywhere. They're all over the place. And you can think of lots of little things. That example I gave earlier with elation and toenail why would you not be able to do it in your head? Because your brain is not that powerful all by itself for many kinds of problems. It's a lot easier to move these pieces around in the world and these things become sort of form a partnership. Yeah, in the book, one of the directions uh, we take this in, uh, again, thinking about application and how does this show up in everyday interactions. Uh, one of the directions we took this in was just your everyday meeting. Like imagine a kickoff meeting and you've got your sticky notes, maybe someone's got a presentation and a laptop hooked up to that to kick things off. And we actually talk about two different kinds of presentations. The one that I think we're all more familiar with where someone uh, has the presentation prepared ahead of time and they ask everyone to sit down and passively absorb the information. So that's kind of the, the contrast we set up. But then we talk about the type of meeting, particularly a, a kickoff meeting or, or a brainstorming meeting where there is no uh, single person driving the meeting. It's, there's maybe some structure in place. Uh, it could be structure in the form of a canvas on the wall. It could be structure in the form of some three questions or four questions to answer. Uh, there's sticky notes, there's a table, there's markers, there's pens. And what we start doing then in the book is saying, okay, consider everything in that room, the pen, the sticky notes, the information, the information that people bring with themselves in their heads, right? Prior experiences. And think about that room and those people and those tools and everything as the cognitive space now. And it 
just looking at an everyday activity like that, like a facilitation exercise, you suddenly see it in a whole different way where, you know, if there are five people in the room, we're all part of this brain, this mind, right? We're collectively thinking. And so now we have to talk about how do we get ideas out and on the wall so everyone can see them. Uh, particular sticky notes, I think uh, one of the invisible benefits that we don't talk enough about is how you can take a sticky note or take 20 sticky notes and remix them and sort them and arrange them into different patterns. And in that case, it's both the resulting patterns that you arrange them in. So sort this on a timeline, right? Or put this on an XY matrix or put these in these uh, squares, right? There's the, the model itself, but then the act of rearranging these things, these interactions with these bits of information are themselves a way to see those bits of information in a new way, in a new light. And so there's all these things suddenly that come to life when you start looking at it through this perspective that Carl and I are writing about in the book, where we can now appreciate what's going on cognitively. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth, we'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when, programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're gonna find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. So, you know, it's interesting as you guys talk through this, I mean, I can see the clear benefits for people working with information and, and people certainly in the, in the broad design space. Um, you know, Carl, you know, I knew you when you worked uh, at Argus, uh, which was, uh, the information architecture firm that, uh, Peter and I ran back in, uh, Michigan in the late nineties. Uh, and you're director of IA for Normative now. Stephen, a lot of people know you from your first book, Seductive Interaction Design. So you have IA and you have interaction design represented in the writing. I'm wondering, in the writers, I should say, I'm wondering how, oh, do you feel like those areas provided you with any kind of fundamentals that help move your thinking further? Or do you feel like a lot of, this book is a reaction to those areas maybe falling short. I think I stumped them. <laughs> I'm pausing to think about that. Maybe yes and. Uh, 
It's it's hard to say because I mean, yeah, definitely there's a critique. Um, particularly as we get nearer to the end, we level a critique at how we do things, whether it's just common behaviors, like in an office, also the tools we use, there's a critique of some of the tools that we have been given that we just accept. So definitely there's a reaction. Uh, so yes to that part. But I think, um, you know, our perspective builds on the knowledge that we have. So yeah, I mean, yes to both. <laughs> Yeah, when I think about my work at, you know, at Argus doing information architecture, um, the way I looked at it was kind of the way, you know, we, the way you talked about it in the information architecture for the web book as a librarian perspective where there is a sort of responsibility to create order out of the chaos and to do this for other people. Um, that there is a curatorial role, there's a structural role, right? Very much in the vein of a physical architect, creating structure that can shape behavior, that can create experiences for other people. And I took that very seriously, and I think that that is still a hugely important role. But in doing so, I think that we always need to go back and look at some of the basic kinds of assumptions under which work happens, uh, under which we view the world. and those assumptions were completely upended in the information world when the internet exploded onto the scene. Networks, right, completely transformed the way that we accessed. You remember the days of dialogue in LexisNexis and how AltaVista and then later Google and everything else completely transformed those kinds of businesses and the way that we had access to information. And over the last 10 years, it's become increasingly clear, I think, to many people that the way that we interact with the information that we have through our digital tools especially is still, even with the most advanced tools we have, very, very limited compared to what could be possible. There are still many cases when a post-it note or a wall of them is vastly better than anything you can buy no matter how much money you have. Yeah, um, and so I, I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of, these technologies are gonna continue to change they can continue to get more embedded in every nook and cranny of our life, right? Literally embedded computation throughout the world, new kinds of sensors, but also new and richer ways of interaction. I think this is one of the major things for me that I've seen is that information could be dramatically different and more interactive in ways which begin to approach and then surpass what we can do with physical objects right now, which creates a whole new opportunity for how we use Phys the physical world around us, including our bodies and artifacts and space and everything else. And so this book in many ways, I think our, our, one of our big ideas is giving people a perspective, uh, a conceptual toolkit, a vocabulary that will work to some extent with the world of today for sure, but will also continue to be useful for them as new technologies come on scene, no matter what they are. Yeah, I think if we go back to, uh, we're talking half decades now, right? Um, the origins of the book and when I pitched it, I think I said, I wanna do a book that's sort of about visualizations, data visualizations, but it's not about that. It's about why they work in the first place. And there was still a lot I didn't know or would discover. Um, this was before I asked Carl to join me and bring uh, bring a whole nother dimension to that. But I wanted to talk about these these things we create. And at the time, I think uh, I, I've created a lot of really interesting 
visual representations in user interfaces, web apps. I've done the same thing with concept models. But as I started getting into it and what makes these work, I realized what's the same thing that makes them work when they're on the wall in the form of a business model canvas or a SWOT matrix or some of these other patterns and started digging deeper and realizing, hey, there's, there's ways that we as humans use space around us to hold meaning. We talk about things being in front of us or behind us or putting them up on high or down low. Uh, we can talk about things being on one side of a line or another, or that line being a fuzzy boundary. There's all these ideas. And so I started looking for these universals, um, mostly around spatial representation, around our use of things like visual encodings. When do we choose a certain color versus when do we choose line thickness, all of these types of things. Uh, but that was kind of the center of the book. And then it was backing out and realizing, okay, with these interactive visualizations like UIs, there's also interaction in the form of interface controls, but it's not just the slider or clicking the heart to like something. There's something more fundamental going on here. If I heart something, it's the same as, you know, um, putting a bookmark or annotating or highlighting. And then, you know, it's a very similar pattern. And that's where I think uh, Carl and I started chatting about this and he started bringing his Scrabble examples and chess examples and bringing a depth to the interaction patterns and not as interaction controls or in terms of computer devices and user interfaces, but timeless patterns. So things mm -hmm. we did thousands of years ago and things we'll do thousands of years from now, um, what are those? And if we can talk about those, then we have a more fundamental way to approach everything, everything we do uh, related to information. Well, I love those examples uh, that are non-digital. They really kind of bring it home, things like chess. Uh, one of the really compelling examples in the book is the first one uh, that um, hits very home for you, Stephen. And I wonder if the, that example um, involving your son uh, kind of pulls together a, a number of the things that you guys have been talking about today. It does pull together a number of those. That's the, uh, the diabetes chart. Uh, so my son, when he was four, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And I'll Skip past a lot of the, the details, but it's essentially a whole new way of life for the child and the parents that you have to adjust to. And there was a medical form that uh, the hospital gave us as part of their three-day retraining program. And they, I'm not kidding, they took 30 minutes to walk through the form, a one-page form, just to make sure we understood the information on the form. Pretty and important. You get it wrong. That's, a, that's dangerous. Yeah, yeah. In fact, there was one area where there, if you if you misunderstood what they were saying, like as far as the dosage amount, you could uh, overdose your son on the medicine and, and put them in harm in a different way. Uh, so yeah, we we I took on the uh, the effort of redesigning that form. In fact, my wife looked at me and told me, "You got to fix this." <laughs> and uh, so we write about that in the book, and I show kind of the before and after. And for me, it was just applying some things maybe I'd learned uh, in design or as a graphic designer, but uh, you know, in conversation with Carl and others, I started to see the patterns and what I was doing. We had information in this one page that was, uh, I would later find out, written by a legal department. And then I took the information, I didn't remove any of it, but I transformed it into something more understandable where you could see the patterns. And so both the final resulting artifact was a great example of a visual representation of information, but also the process to get there was a great example of these interaction patterns that we talk about, moving things around and looking for patterns in the data, patterns in the information. 
so yeah, that's um, that definitely represents several of the themes we hit upon. Well, you know, we really kind of scratched the surface today, but uh, I, I think we've certainly covered some uh, some examples and some broader principles that I think will give people a good taste of of, of what figure out figure it out is about. Um, uh, before we wrap, I have a couple of questions uh, for you uh, both. Uh, first of all, Stephen, uh, one of the new projects you're working on, you're already kind of moving past the book into a a club. What's that? The Mighty, yeah, actually, the Mighty Minds Club? The Mighty Minds Club. Actually, it's building on a lot of the ideas in the book. So we're, the path I've been on for the past several years has been more around facilitation and training and mentoring folks. And I've started realizing more and more just the value of these structures for thinking. And uh, a lot of what I was doing in the past couple of years at my, with my previous employer was bringing models to the team of say 50 designers or a room filled with designers and product managers, bringing these tools uh, to these teams to help them work through difficult situations. And so I think there's a real value to, uh, to, to both curate, find, but then explain and share with a broader, uh, a broader group of folks, all these great tools for thinking. And it's not just things I'm finding, I'm uh, engaging in conversations uh, every week, every day sometimes, and I'm discovering new things and new ideas that I didn't know about that then I can turn around and share in the Mighty Minds Club. So yeah, definitely very, uh, very exciting. I think it gets to the heart of what uh, I care about, and even even though I couldn't have articulated it when we started the book, a lot of why I wrote this, which was we need better ways to make sense of and figure out things, particularly when they're complicated or complex or confusing. Well, you know, I don't know who qualifies as a, a mighty mind, but I'm sure you'll be letting people know if they're, you know, qualified to join and, and how. Um, go ahead. Everyone can be a mighty mind. Oh. <laughs> Okay. I really didn't want to be rejected totally. Um, but I did set myself up. Um, also just like to ask you guys, um, I always like to ask our guests who or what do you think our listeners should know about Carl? You want to go first? Well, I've always got lots. Um, people often tell me I'm like a walking reader's advisor. Well, we'll limited to uh, one or two, let's say. Well, limited to one or two. So I'm going to recommend two books to people. The first one is called Smarter Than You Think by Clive Thompson. And the main, or I mention it largely because it is very much in the vein of what this book is about. It takes a broader view, but the subtitle is How Technology is Changing Our Minds for the Better. And the argument that he has is that there's a large discourse in our society that says like, hey, technology is making us dumber. It's dumbing us down. Um, and that there's all kinds of problems and we should, we should just avoid all these different types of things. And he's uh, a good example of that particularly is The Shallows by Nick, Nicholas Carr, which was shortlisted for the Pulitzer. Maybe they even won it. Um, Thompson's book is a reaction in many ways to that. Um, and if you're looking for a good general interest book around that, that is somewhat related to uh, the book that we're talking about as well, then the book that we just have written, then I would recommend that. The other one is a book by Tim Harford, and it's called Messy, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives. And this one was particularly important for me because as someone who grew up through information architecture, um, and even before that as someone who went to university and studied engineering, in, uh, engineering physics, all of that is very much about understanding and creating an ordered, structured view of the world and the universe and reality 
as we as best we can make that. Um, and this book, in messy, Hartford says like, yeah, that's really wrong. There's a whole bunch of ways in which mess is not bad, which mess is not only something that you isn't as harmful as you think, but it's actually incredibly beneficial. And that without it, you cannot think as well. You cannot do the kinds of things. There's so many aspects of life that simply do not function nearly as well if you don't cultivate mess in the proper ways. Well, to use the evolutionary metaphor, it's sort of the, it's where mutation happens. Uh, yeah. Well, Harford's someone I hear about quite a bit lately, so thank you for bringing him up. Uh, Stephen, how about you? Well, I've got two more books to add to my uh, reading list. Thank you, Carl. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to recommend two people, and you can go online and Google uh, their names and the work they're doing. Uh, and I'm going to re reference these people because they embody, I think, everything that Carl and I are writing about in the book, and they give a tangible form to it. So the first person I'm going to recommend everyone look, look out for is uh, Nikki Case. And uh, Nikki is most closely associated with these explorable explanations. And so what Nikki does is takes these really complex ideas, um, often social ideas, uh, things around like the nature of trust or desegregation, and creates these uh, almost game-like explorable explanations, things you can play with. And in the course of playing with these very interactive visual uh, uh, tools, you actually start to learn and get uh, familiar or acquainted with these really complex ideas. So Nikki Case, Explorable Explanations. Is that Nikki, K-K-I-C-K-Y? Uh, oh, gosh, you had to ask that. I think it's uh, N-I-C-K-Y, but it could be an I. Uh, I we'll we'll do a little Googling ourselves for the for the Google and Google will correct, correct the misspelling. Nikki Case, Explorable Explanations. Um, the other person is Brett Victor, um, who uh, he's he has done similar work over the years, uh, showing how we can create these playful visual interactions. Um, his focus has been more on the real-time feedback loop and that if we can't see the effects of the, the, the actions we're taking, there is, uh, it's actually difficult to work with these tools. And so an example he used traditionally was uh, coding and how with traditional software programming, um, you would have to compile everything. And there was a matter of minutes between compiling and actually seeing the effect of that. And so what he talked about years ago were tools where you could see the real-time effect of changing different numbers and variables and things in your code. What he's done more recently, and I think embodies more of the uh, where this could go in the future, is bringing the idea of computing into a room and asking what if we were all inside the computer and what if programming was as simple as cutting pieces of paper out, drawing squiggles on sheets of paper and putting them out. And so suddenly if you go into uh, this uh, project he's been uh, pioneering for the last, I want to say year and a half, two years um, called Dynamic Land, you go inside and everyone there is part of a computer programming things and doing computation. And it's just, it's a radical rethinking mm. of of what it means to compute or to uh, <laughs> to do these things. It's very collaborative, it's very tangible, it's physical, it's very interactive. And we look at that and we say, okay, everything we've written about totally shows up in dynamic land and what he's doing there. Uh, it's just a completely different form than maybe some of the other examples that we commonly cite. So yeah, very exciting work there. Damn, you guys are interesting. <laughs> 
you, you, I, I'm always afraid to talk with you because I'm going to either uh, feel like, you know, overwhelmed with conceptual goodness or feel really uh, uh, shamed by my lack thereof or both. So thanks a lot, man. Uh, really, seriously, thank you. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, Stephen Anderson. Yeah, Stephen Anderson and Carl Fast, authors of Figured Out. Getting from information to understanding. It's a two waves book. That's one of the that's one of the imprints of Rosenfeld Media. I'm Lou Rosenfeld, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review, brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen. And please check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com.